and welcome to The Play Readers, a podcast where we discuss unusual or infrequently produced plays. I'm your co-host, Andrea. And I'm Nick. And we are The Play Readers. Today we're going to get a little bit meta. Uh, Instead of talking about a specific play, we're going to talk about plays in general and the process of reading them and finding them. Yeah, we figure uh, this is our 11th episode now. Mm -hmm. Uh, The plan at this point in time is to discuss a play called Landscape of the Body by John Guare next episode. Yep. But I wanted to take a little time off just to kind of get, talk about what it is we're doing here. Sure. A little bit. I know that the episode will be released on April Fool's Day. (laughs) Uh, At least that's the intent at this point in time. And uh, we are, of course, I mean, just give you a sense of history. We're quarantined right now. Yeah. And uh, so we're we're making a podcast about what we're doing as far as making a podcast goes. <laughs> it's our meta episode. Just to give you an idea, Andrea and I are, we're both, we were both theater students as undergraduates. Yep. So we do have a little bit of background in theater beyond uh, just doing it at community theater, but we've also not had a lot of experience with professional theaters um so that give you an idea of exactly where we are in terms of our education mm-hmm. and part of the reason i mean we've we've talked about doing what better known plays a little or even i mean one of the things we first talked about with this play uh, with this podcast was that we weren't going to handle shakespeare right and that was in large part because there are some plays that are so well known that it would be a redundancy Really, there are better educated people out there Absolutely. than us who are going to handle your Chekhov and your Shakespeare and your Ibsen and that sort of thing. So we're handling a lot of the lesser known stuff. Yep. What we really wanted to do was just an episode wherein we, we talked about what it was we did. So the first thing to do if you want to read plays yeah. on a regular basis. This whole thing for me started, I guess it's been about eight years, and... For me, it was it was a, an attempt at writing a play when I started to realize that I hadn't read enough plays to really even know what the heck it was I was doing. Yeah. So I decided I had to read a whole lot of plays. Mm-hmm. Initially, at the time, I had access to a pretty good library as far, as far as scripts went. Mm-hmm. And then we moved. Yep. And the library locally here doesn't have as many scripts. Yeah. So that's where we discovered the interlibrary loan system, which has allowed me to read quite a number of them. Oh, yeah. In fact, I went about three and a half years there where I constantly had stuff checked out. Ended up reading about an average of 100 plays a year. Yeah. (laughs) Over that period of time. So I have read a number of plays, and that's kind of what eventually birthed this idea for a podcast. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, the first thing you do when it comes to reading plays is you got to decide what do you want to read. Yeah. I mean, if you're a theater student, you're probably going to have to read some old classic works, including Shakespeare. Yeah, I think most theater programs are going to have an expectation that at a certain point in that education, there are plays that you have to know. You know, that you have to have read or have to have, you know, uh, at least seen. a familiarity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But there are, I, I categorized the uh, the types of plays into four categories. And this is just mm-hmm. my own. I didn't get this from anybody else. Yeah. The first type is musicals, mm-hmm. which are very popular. There are almost certainly other podcasts out there about Broadway musicals. Absolutely. The second type of play that I think is worth bringing up are the modern and more recent Broadway-style plays. Sure. So you're talking... 
Annie Baker, Lynn Nottage, Martin McDonough, um, people who are contemporaries, Mm -hmm. basically. And the reason they're sort of separate, I separate them as a category, is they tend to be more adult in theme and in language. Uh, It's not the kind of thing you're going to produce for a community theater Mm-hmm. Or a high school theater or anything like that. These these modern plays, they have swear words in them and stuff. <laughs> so probably you're only going to see those with professional theaters and maybe collegiate theaters. Then you've got the community theater favorites, which is the third category I've got here. They, they include things like Arsenic and Old Lace. Yeah. Pretty much anything by Larry Hsu or mm-hmm. Neil Simon. Oh, yeah. Or Ray Cooney. Yes. Or Jack Sharkey. <laughs> There's a bunch of them. Yep, anyway, there are. The fourth category I have are plays that are considered classics. They are of historical significance. Mm-hmm. They're not usually the kind of things you're going to see outside of um, an academic yeah. or professional yeah. uh, level as well. So one of those four categories depends on what it is your specific needs are. Yeah. If you're a theater student, you're going to have to read the the classics mm-hmm. and probably modern stuff and community theaters, pretty much all of them. Yeah. If you're if you're a training to be a professional or if you are a professional, all four categories of those plays you're going to have to deal with. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of the people we know personally are more, they do community theater. Mm-hmm. And if your only interest is community theater, then you're probably only going to have to worry about those community theater favorites. Mm-hmm. You might do the more recent stuff. Because, I mean, even in the small area we live in, they do occasionally do Sarah Rule or uh, Yasmina Reza yeah. or uh, Neil LaBute. I yeah. would say they did um, The Shape of Things. Yes, I think Not so. Too, well, I guess it was like seven years ago. Well, still. But yeah, those are the basic things. And so it's a question of whether or not you want to read those plays or not. But let's yeah. say you do. Mm-hmm. Let's say you you are like us. You're not interested in musicals, but you want to touch on absolutely everything else. Yeah. Well, the first thing you got to do is figure out what to read. Right. Now, there's a lot of stuff that you can use as far as resources go. Probably the big ones that I have personally used mm-hmm. are Amazon. Right. Google Books Mm -hmm. and Wikipedia. Sure. And you can use those to find whatever you need as far as plays go. Mm -hmm. Amazon in particular has the the wish list feature. Mm -hmm. I've made huge lists of plays to read, especially contemporary plays. Yeah. Using the the wish list feature on Amazon. Uh, They also have uh, related items Mm -hmm. on Amazon. Google Books has that as well. Recommendations. Recommendations, yes. So people who enjoyed this also enjoyed whatever. And by doing that, all you really have to do is start with something you know. Yeah. So let's say you were just in a production of The Nerd by Larry Hsu, Mm -hmm. and that's the only point of reference you have. But you want to read something like it. But you want, yes, you want to read more. So you can go to Google Books and look up The Nerd by Larry Hsu. Um, And of course, if you've been in the play, you should know who the playwright is. Yeah, right. So Amazon should give you recommendations. You like The Nerd, so what else? So chances are you're going to read The Foreigner by Larry Hsu. But you just start from that that point Mm -hmm. in knowing something, and then you move from that point on. Right. Uh, online lists are also helpful. There's not a lot of them that I've come across. 
But there are certain academic programs that would certainly have lists of like, if you're going to apply to say our MFA, these are the plays that we expect you to be familiar with. Yeah, and, and so I've, I've that's found a, good a few starting of point. those. Yeah, a lot of times colleges and universities will have catalogs. Yeah, uh, for each individual program, and sometimes they do. They'll have a mm-hmm. big long list of if you're going to be a theater major, these are the plays you probably should be familiar with. Yeah. Um, I also happened to go on Goodreads recently and was able to find a number of different lists for, um, you know, and these are all user created lists, but, you know, collections of, you know, these are my favorite plays. And you can use Goodreads as well to create a, a list of things that you want to read. Um, so that's a good resource as well if you're looking to kind of get ideas and then keep track of the things that you have an interest in. Mm-hmm. And then another uh, another thing to keep in mind, you know, if you don't want to waste your time reading plays that have largely been forgotten or really aren't of, of much value to you, there's also a number of really, really significant plays have received awards, especially over the last century. Absolutely. Or so. And so a lot of times what I will do if I'm just looking for something that I want to read mm-hmm. is I'll go to Wikipedia and I'll look up either the list, or the, I'll look up the Pulitzer Prize for Drama winners. Mm-hmm. There's a big long list of all the all the plays that have won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Uh, there's Tony Awards. Yeah. Uh, there are a number of of non-American award systems, including the Moliere Award in France. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a few in the UK. Um, they all have. I mean, just about any nation that produces theater has some sort of acknowledgement for the people who have done it. Yeah. So once you figure out what it is you want to read, you got a list, you're like, well, you know, I want to read, you know, the the local theater is doing this play and I want to get my hands on it. Uh, It's a question of whether or not you want to buy them. Right. Now, uh, I can't speak a lot for illegal means of getting plays. No, we're not going to do that. (laughs) But um, if you want to find stuff online, I would suggest, number one, if they're old plays, Mm -hmm. you can usually find stuff that's in the public domain on Google Books. Or there's another place called Internet Archive. Oh, okay. That has a lot of that. And you can download stuff as PDFs. And and that's free. And that's legal. Yes. Because it's public domain. Right. Uh, Otherwise, you can do the interlibrary loan system. Yes. Which is the by far the thing that I recommend the most. Mm-hmm. And all you really have to do is get a library card. Mm-hmm. Go to your, even if you live in a teeny tiny town in the middle of nowhere. And I'm sure that the overseas you've got some other programs like this. So I'm really just talking about the United States yeah. and our own personal experiences. But even if you live in a teeny tiny town in the middle of nowhere, if you have a library there, yep, they can get you pretty much anything you want. Yes. All you have to do, if you're not sure exactly what your local system is, mm-hmm. ask a librarian. That's what they're there for. Librarians are great. For us, it's a system called the Iliad. Mm-hmm. And usually interlibrary loan is abbreviated I-L-L. Yes. It's just that locally they call it the Iliad. Mm-hmm. But really, you just go in, you find out who wrote it, when it was published, what the ISBN number, that helps an awful lot if you yep. got that. And you can get that on Amazon if you can find an entry for it there. You can find it on Google Books if you can find the entry there. Uh And then using that, you go to whatever your library system is, Mm -hmm. and then you fill in that information. And I have found that they are nearly 100% accurate in what they've got. Like I said, I went for three and a half years. And during that time, I think they only made a mistake twice. 
Wow. Out of hundreds. Yeah, sure. And, you know, for reference, we live in South Dakota, which, you know, probably pretty limited in terms of access, local accessibility, but you've gotten plays through the interlibrary loan system from all over the country, right? Pretty much. I think the furthest one I got was from Maine. Okay. Yeah. Uh, more often than not, they try to find as close, physically as close as you can. So a lot yes. of the interlibrary loans I get come from South Dakota libraries and universities. Yeah. And there are certain limitations on what they can do. They won't give you, a, they won't lend you a book that's brand new. Right. It has to be at least a year in their possession before they'll lend it out. Mm -hmm. There are certain reference materials that they won't let lend out. Yeah. Uh, Journals and that sort of thing are a little bit harder to get your hands on. Mm -hmm. But if it's a book, even if it's one of those acting editions out of DPS or Samuel French, someone's got it at their library. And so you can get those. Yeah. I think there was also, you had mentioned that there was also a limitation if it was specifically rare. Yeah. If it's... I mean, if it's an old book, yeah. if you're talking about a book that's over 100 years old and so physically it's brittle, yeah. you're probably not going to be able to get those either. Mm-hmm. But if it's over 100 years old, you might be able to get that on Google Books for free. That's a good point. So uh, it sort of depends. I mean, there have been plays that I, I found them on Google Books, at least in terms of knowing that they exist. Uh-huh. But I requested them and they were just not available. Yeah. You know, either because they didn't have them in the system mm-hmm. or because they were too brittle to be uh, lent out. I, yeah. I'm not sure which was. Could not survive the transport. Yeah. So there are certain books you're not going to be able to get your hands on, mm-hmm. but it beats the heck out of trying to buy it on Amazon for a ridiculous price. Yeah, we should talk about Amazon and a little pricing. Bit. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, uh, well then let's go in uh, to buying plays. Sure. If you really want to buy the play uh, because you you have space in your home, I mean, part of the reason we go with interlibrary loans is just because we don't have space for a gigantic collection of plays. And let's face it, you know, it's that gets expensive, having a collection like that. It does. And uh, so you want to get plays. It used to be... For a long time, I would recommend Amazon because yeah. most of those acting editions from Samuel French and DPS were like $8 a piece. And Amazon used to have a deal to where you, if you bought three of those acting editions, you could get the fourth for free. Yeah. And the shipping was free. Yeah. So, you know, if you were willing to buy a number of plays, you could get a whole lot of plays for relatively cheap. That was a heck of a deal. It was. And they don't do that anymore. Yeah. It, it looks like Amazon stopped carrying new copies of acting editions, and mm-hmm. the ones that they have are being sold for a ridiculous amount of money. Yeah. So don't do that. Yeah. I mean, unless you just happen to come across a great deal, I mean, it might be worth checking out to see what Amazon pricing is, but don't hold your breath and definitely don't believe that it's the only way to go unless you've definitely checked around to other places. Yeah, unless it's an anthology or something, you might be able to get a, a good price on something that's used. But those yeah. those acting editions, forget them on Amazon. There's yeah. just the used ones aren't even worth the money. Yeah. If you want to buy them new, I would suggest going directly through Dramatist Play Services website or Samuel French's. Yeah. Uh, I think playscripts.org. Yeah. Or .com. I can't remember which one it is. But there mm-hmm. are other uh, organizations out there that, mm-hmm. that will retail those. 
and you know DPS and Sam French. I mean, if you're actually producing a play, chances are you're going to buy your scripts from those organizations anyway, right? Because you're going to have to talk to them about your the rights, right? Other things about reading plays. There is one little note that I wanted to make here. Mm-hmm. If you are, especially community theaters, mm-hmm. they want a title that is familiar, but it is not a work of dramatic literature. So, for example, let's say your favorite novel in the whole world is is something you want to produce as a play, but it was never actually written as a play, at least not in its own time by a professional playwright. Okay. There are a number of, I hesitate to call them playwrights, <laughs> but what they will do, one of the names that's really familiar to me is F. Andrew Leslie. Uh-huh. And F. Andrew Leslie, I was not able to find any information on him. But what he did was he's got a version of The Hound of the Baskervilles. Uh He's got a version of The Haunting of Hill House. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a number of other novels, but what he did was adapt them to the stage. Okay. They are not (laughs) well-written. They are not well-planned out. I've been involved with these shows. In fact, one of the most recent productions I was in was one of these. Right. It was based on a short story. Actually, it was more based on a a film from the 1950s. And the playwright was known for nothing else. Yes. And uh, it was one of the most poorly written plays I have ever been involved with. Yeah, we're getting a little meta today, and we're also getting a little shady. (laughs) Yeah. I I will I will, I'm not going to mention the names of the plays or anything like that because yeah. it would be a little too easy for people to find out who produced them and I don't mm-hmm. I don't want to give bad press to anybody by yeah. any means. But there was that experience. There was a play that I directed that was one of those. Uh-huh. And the real question there is whether or not the person doing the adapting is actually a playwright. Right. So, for example, there's an actually there's actually a very good adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde out there. It was published mm-hmm. in twenty aughts somewhere. It's by a playwright by the name of Jeffrey Hatcher. Okay. And it's notable because every cast member plays Mr. Hyde at some point in time. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's only a six-person show, I want to say. Yeah. And so a lot of the actors end up playing multiple roles in that. Yeah. Something like that would be cool to do. Right. But you, it's it's important, I would say, if you're going to do that and you want something that's well-written, yeah. find out who the playwright is and whether or not they're known for anything else. Right. Um, just to kind of go back to that one experience you had, one of the things that I remember you talking about specifically when you were in that show is that because it was based on a film, in your opinion, it was sort of written as though it was a film. It was, yeah. Which made a lot of necessities for being on stage extremely difficult. And, and so to me, that's an indication that the playwright doesn't really know how to write plays. Yeah, a, a little bit of a lack of awareness yeah. of stage necessities. I suspect that a lot of the dialogue was just lifted directly from one of the original sources. Maybe. Sort of so going further from that. Yeah, you've got the plays that you want to read. You know what you want to read. You can get your hands on them. Yep. Now what? How do you read them? Okay. What is the process of reading a script? The first thing I will say about this is that if you are involved with the production of a script, whether you are an actor or a director or you're designing the costumes or the set or the props, read the play. And I've had way too many experiences with people who 
you know, I understand it's it's community theater mm -hmm. and people are just trying to help. But the problem is that if you bring someone on to create a prop and they have no clue what the context is. Oh, golly. You yes. might end up with something that someone spends a lot of time on that you just can't use. Yeah. I mean, we had uh, we had one experience with yeah. a play where we needed a, it was a cudgel. Yes. So basically a club. Yeah. And it needed to be used to bonk somebody over the head. Right. Well, the person who was assigned to create this prop was not given that last piece of information. Yeah. So what we ended up with was a real club. Yes. That was made of some sort of dentist cement or something like that. It but was that, heavy. That sucker was 20 or 30 pounds. Yeah. And if we had used it to actually bonk that actor over the head, we would have ended up with a concussion on our hands. At least. And for technicians, it is so, I mean, you don't even have to sit down for two hours and read it. Just show up to one of the read-throughs or yeah. a rehearsal. Yeah. Context matters so much. It really, really does. The process of actually reading a script. So, once upon a time, I took some classes. Right. In college. As and, did I. And two of those classes where we had to read scripts, there was one called Dramatic Literature. Mm -hmm. And there was another one called Script Analysis. Yes. And one of the things we talked about was, how do you read a script? Yeah. You know, it's, it's not just a matter of sitting down and, and reading it, although that is like 80, 90% of it right there. <laughs> a script to the final story, the final production is the same as like trying to figure out how to find your way around a building by reading its blueprints. Yeah. You can do it, but it's a different creature than actually going into a building and roaming around and seeing all the rooms for yourself. Absolutely. But if you happen to be a construction worker or a foreman or something like that, you got to know how to read that blueprint. Yeah. And if you're a director or an actor or something, you got to know how to read that script. Absolutely. I and think that's so, a really good comparison is, you know, the average person looking at a blueprint, they could probably get a pretty good idea of, you know, what something would look like. But somebody who's been looking at a blueprint for, you know, years and knows exactly what they're looking at, they're going to look at that and have a much more complete understanding of what's going on there. And that also kind of translates into reading a script. The big thing for me, Read the stage directions. Yes. That was like the first rule I think I ever got taught about yeah. reading scripts is you have to read the stage directions. Absolutely. Now I know what happens. Like I get into a play and I read the script once all the way through and then I'll get a highlighter and yep. I'll just highlight all my lines. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, that's the only part of the script I see. Yeah. I've been in scenes where I've been like, I don't know what to do with this line. Yeah. And then I'll take another look at the script and I'll go, oh, there's that big you know, paragraph of stage directions that I've been ignoring for the last three weeks. Yeah. And it'll turn out there's something in the stage directions that tells me exactly what I need to know about that scene. Yeah. The dialogue is a huge chunk of what a play is. I mean, that's what playwrights do. They, they're wordsmiths. They, yeah. they deal in what people are actually saying. But you got to know what is happening on stage. Yeah. The action is also very important. It is. I mean, there's a lot of other things that you can do. It's important to try to visualize what it looks like. Yeah. 
What is it going to look like when it's on stage? What is it going to sound like? One of the big things that I do a mm-hmm. lot of times is is hearing it in my head yeah. and figuring out how to take these words on the script and what they should sound like. Mm-hmm. Um, because there are certain words that you emphasize. Yeah. Sometimes playwrights are real nice and they'll, they'll italicize or use bold or underline to, mm-hmm. to show you where where the emphasis should be but other times you got to figure it out for yourself as an actor i think there are a lot of fun exercises where you can take a simple sentence and um place emphasis on each word in it uh, a different way you can mentally cast the show yeah you know if you've got if you know actors or you just i mean just pick out your favorite celebrities Mm -hmm. and just try to imagine in those roles that can help yeah there's a lot of challenges, though, and one of the things that I wanted to bring up was script formatting. Right. Because I've read a lot of scripts, and the thing about uh, playwriting is there really aren't a lot of set standardizations. Yes. As in, I mean, for example, I'll just tell you, describe the basic element of a script mm-hmm. is somebody's line. So let's say that the character's name is John Smith. The uh, The script will probably have the first name, John, mm-hmm. all caps, mm-hmm. and then a colon, mm-hmm. and then a space, and then the line, right? whatever it is. So if John Smith says, hi, how are you doing? It'll be John in all caps, colon, space, hi, how are you doing? Right. And every little thing matters as far as acting goes because Mm -hmm. the commas mean something, the question mark means something, an exclamation point means something, whether or not it's italicized means something. Mm -hmm. Some uh, playwrights will all caps, use all caps as an indication for the line needs to be screamed or shouted really loudly. Um, But there's, but they're, they're not all like that. Yes. Some scripts, the uh, the name John would be uh, capital J, then lowercase O H N, and then a colon. Yeah. Some of them wouldn't won't have a colon; they'll have a hyphen. Yeah. Some of them will not have a hyphen or a colon. Yeah. Sometimes the line will be right next to the person who says it, or sometimes it'll be underneath mm-hmm. the name of the person who says it. Uh, stage directions. Right, also. Sometimes they're encased in parentheses. Sometimes they're encased in brackets. Sometimes they're italicized. Sometimes they aren't. Uh, sometimes they're in the middle of a line. Yeah, there's no MLA formatting up in here. <laughs> yeah, it's. I, I don't think there was ever a point in time where every playwright in the world got together and said, okay, here's how we're going to do it. Yeah. There may have been an attempt at some point in time, but I don't even think that's true anymore. Mm-hmm. I think even with modern scripts, there's a lot of license being taken with with formatting yeah there are certain things like one of the examples i bring up to you is the word re-enter yes the word re-enter shows up in scripts a lot of course and these days i think usually the word re-enter is spelled Mm r-e-e-n-t-e-r all one word in the past, though, sometimes it's been hyphenated. Yeah. So R-E hyphen enter. Mm-hmm. And in, in some cases, uh, back in maybe the, the 1910s or 1920s, yeah. there were a number of playwrights who would spell re-enter with an umlaut over uh-huh. the second E. Okay. Oh, but it gets even more complicated. <laughs> sometimes, so stage directions are usually descriptions. Uh-huh. Sometimes they'll include descriptions of characters. Mm-hmm. 
Sometimes there'll just be an adverb that tells you how the line should be said. Mm -hmm. So coquettishly or something like that. Yeah. What's really infuriating to me is sometimes the stage directions will include blocking. Right. So basically what the director would normally do, some editor or somebody decided to put all, every time John wants to go stage left, it'll actually say that in the script. Yeah. Oh, that's usually with old DPS and Samuel French scripts where they're, they're the blocking is refer, in reference to the, the actual stage design that yes. they put in the script. From the original production, right? Yeah. But a lot of plays, especially these days, you don't see that so much anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially if it's a modern Broadway-type play. A yeah. lot of times they won't even have any stage directions in there at all, mm-hmm. except for what's absolutely vital yeah. to understand the scene. Uh, sometimes stage directions can cause some vagueness. Uh, I see this especially with old murder mysteries. Yeah, yeah. So you'll have a stage direction at the beginning of the script that says, a man enters, and then anytime that man speaks, it'll be capital M, capital A, capital N, colon, mm-hmm. so on and so forth, until he reveals his name. Yes. And then it'll change. To John or Mr. Smith or something like that. This is actually something we saw a little bit in the Cave Dwellers. Cave you know, Dwellers, where the identification of the the character changed depending on, you know, at one point they introduced themselves more or less. Uh, I think the Bat had the same thing going on. A That's lot of those true. Old, old murder mysteries. Uh, the musical comedy murders of 1940 mm-hmm. by John Bishop has that going on with it. Okay. Where it just refers to someone as being a figure. Right. The other thing is uh, an ellipsis versus a dash. Yes. These days, if a line ends with a dash, mm-hmm. that is an indication that another character is cutting that person off. Mm-hmm. So they intend to say more, but somebody is saying something to disrupt them. Yes. If an ellipsis is there, mm-hmm. and if you don't know what an ellipsis is, it's three dots. Yep. It indicates that the character is trailing off. Yeah. These days. These days. That's what it means. Yes. I was in a production of Dial M for Murder once upon a time, and just from context, it sort of looked like the, the sometimes the ellipsis indicated being cut off. Uh-huh. But usually with plays that were written over the last 40 years or so, mm-hmm. a dash is going to indicate being cut off and a, an ellipsis is going to indicate trailing off. Yeah. No standards and formatting. So those are the big, big, big notes I wanted to hit in terms of how to read a play. We also want to touch briefly on what we're looking to do with podcast going forward. Yes. Um, what I'm thinking, because up to this point, what we've just done is picked some unusual plays or, mm-hmm. or at least uh, plays that are not really frequently done yeah as we say in our uh, intro uh, but what I'd like to do is move away from that a little bit partly to make things a little bit easier on me because I'm the <laughs> one doing all the the reading and the research yeah and partly because I kind of I feel like we're just barely touching on some stuff right and it would be it would be fun if we could moving forward maybe do plays in clusters or episodes in clusters sure so i mean we've barely talked about expressionism for example and trying to figure out one expressionist play to talk about woof for me is difficult because there's a lot of them and there, a lot yeah. of them are really good yeah 
And I got this book on expressionism that I want to read, and it's got a bunch of short plays and stuff in it. So mm-hmm. it's it's an opportunity for me to maybe focus my research a little bit more. And we don't have a huge audience, so some of the some of our consideration has to be how do we grow? Yes. How do we use this to make us better as as thespians or for sure knowing our our dramatic literature? Yeah. And so part of what I would like to do going forward is cluster things up mm-hmm. and do like maybe three or four plays that are categorically similar okay. as opposed to uh, bouncing around all over the place, which is what we've done so far. Yeah, a little bit. Um, including maybe not necessarily doing episodes that are just about a single play, mm-hmm. but rather maybe about a genre. Yes, or about an era, mm-hmm. or about a specific playwright. Yeah, you know, we're also looking into um, filling in some gaps in our knowledge and possibly going into much older plays. Um, we might be looking at more international plays. We haven't touched on anything from, say, Canada. Yeah, Canada's a big one. I think it's worth it to mention, just in terms of our podcast, we've we've put out <laughs> 10 episodes so far. By far, our most downloaded episode is the one we did on RUR Heck by Carl yeah. Chopek. <laughs> and I think an overwhelming majority of those downloads are coming from the Czech Republic. Yes. And so. that's, it's sort of fascinating because, well, I mean, we're not getting any downloads from the Czech Republic except for that play. Yeah, so we'd really love to say hi to all of you guys, but... But you don't seem to be listening to our podcast. So. <laughs> to the ep- other episodes. But, you know, big thanks to all the rest of you international listeners and also the U.S. listeners who have stuck with us. Um, we see you. We know you're out there. And uh, we'll be looking at uh, plays from your home countries as well in the near future. Eventually, yeah. I wanted to come up with something from Spain. Yes. Because we have one person from Spain who's listened to all of our episodes. From what we can tell, anyway. Hi, person from Spain. Buenos dias. We don't know who you are, but (laughs) we're glad that you're listening. Yeah. That is all that we have for this particular episode. Our next will be about Landscape of the Body by John Guare. Our email address is theplayreaderspod at gmail.com, and we are at theplayreaders on Twitter. Our intro and outro music is Delightful D by Kevin McLeod, and until next time... Don't forget to read those stage directions. Mm-hmm.